SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yama, welcome to TV Radio. Bertrand Tungandami ngaya. I am Bertrand Tungandami. Coming up in your program this Monday, January 22, Lydia Thorpe, independent MP, reflects on January 26, how the day is marked or should be marked. She also explains how she came up with the Anzac Day style dawn services to mark Invasion Day. Also in the program today, we have a conversation with Angelica Panopoulos, former mayor of Mary Beck Council, also reflecting on January 26, how her council and grassroots organizations have been driving the narrative around how to mark January 26 in a manner that is respectful to First Nations people. Also on NITV Radio today, we have a conversation with Kate Russell, Supply Nation CEO, talking about a new initiative to support the growth of indigenous businesses. All these stories and more coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. This bulletin, Victoria's opposition announces it no longer supports treaty negotiations. The federal government announces two new gas deals. And in netball, the Diamonds take home their second consecutive win as they defeat England's Roses in the Netball Nations Cup. The Victorian opposition say they are withdrawing support for treaty negotiations over concerns about how cultural heritage is and is not working in Victoria. National's leader and the opposition spokesperson for Aboriginal Affairs, Peter Walsh, says the introduction of the laws to oversee the process have caused concerns among coalition MPs. A spokesperson for the First Nations Assembly of Victoria says the opposition's decision to withdraw is disappointing but not surprising. Mr. Walsh says coalition MPs have been approached by people with issues about the process and that those must be resolved before they can move on in the process. He spoke to Sky News about the decision. You have at the moment is a traditional owners group with a monopoly on delivering those cultural heritage studies uh, with no accountability about timeliness or price or actually getting an outcome for people. If someone has a government monopoly, they have a responsibility to do the right thing by those who are requesting a study. 
Energy Minister Chris Bowen says gas-fired stations could have enough fuel to power Australia's east coast for the next two years as he announced the government has entered two supply commitment deals. Mr Bowen says the government has entered two enforceable supply commitments with gas giants ESO and Woodside, resulting in more than 260 petajoules becoming available between now and 2033. He says the deal will help address the demand in areas at risk of seasonal shortfalls and is part of ensuring that gas prices remain down for Australians. The Climate Council, as well as environmentalists, say the extraction and processing of the resources fueling Australia's high emissions. Victoria is launching an investigation into women's pain after a survey found that women's, ex- women experience, women's experiences of pain are often overlooked. The inquiry will examine the systemic issues impacting perceptions and treatment of women's pain and be led by a panel of experts overseen by the Women's Health Advisory Council. Premier Jacinta Allen told reporters that there is a gender pain gap and says women's pain has been treated as a niche issue for too long. The survey prompting the inquiry found that four in ten Victorian women experience chronic pain and one-third have health difficulties that impact their ability to work. Submissions submissions to the inquiry can be made from January 30th. Queenslanders are bracing for another week of severe weather as a potential Category 3 cyclone threatens to hit the state later this week. The Bureau of Meteorology is providing regular updates and warnings to Queenslanders in flood and storm impacted areas and urges residents to stay informed. There are also heat waves warnings in places for parts of Queensland as well as storm warnings for southern Queensland and northern New South Wales today. Yeah, we do have a risk of severe storms across southeast Queensland pushing into northeast New South Wales today, and they may bring some heavy falls that could lead to flash flooding, as well as some fairly gusty winds and large hail. So, uh, with those hot, unstable conditions in those areas, it is a good idea to keep an eye on the radar through the afternoon as well and check out our warnings page in case we need to issue storm warnings for any systems there. Authorities say there remains uncertainty about where the cyclone, which will be called Kirili, will reach land. The inauguration of the controversial Ram Janmabhoomi Mandir in the Indian state of Uttar Pradesh is set to take place today and is garnering mixed reactions from Australia's Indian diaspora. The site has been at the center of controversy for decades following the destruction of the Babri Masjid Mosque by Hindu hardliners in 1992, which saw nearly 2,000 people killed in the ensuing riots. Many of Australia's Indian Hindu diaspora are celebrating the event in temples across the country. Others have expressed their concerns. Those expressing concern and and disappointment over the temple's opening say they view the opening of the temple as more political than religious, as Prime Minister Narendra Modi seeks a rare third term in the upcoming elections. According to the 2021 census by Australian Bureau of Statistics, Hinduism has been growing and now constitutes 2.7% of the total population. 
Politicians are rushing to Canberra this week following Anthony Albanese's calls for a caucus meeting two weeks before Parliament is set to resume. The hastened caucus meeting is set to discuss solutions and relief to the cost of living crisis and inflation, causing hope among Australians in need of financial relief. The Prime Minister has commissioned Treasury and the Department of Finance to work on proposals for cost of living relief, but has given no indication of when such proposals will be announced. Nationals member Barnaby Joyce told Channel 7 Sunrise that the meeting is no more than a political academy award for the Labour government. If they talk about giving you back money by State Street tax cuts, then the crazy lefties come out and say, no, no, keeping the money in the hands of the state is more important than the cost of living crisis. So when this this cost of living crisis uh, hurrah is over Mm. and you've paid your half a million from your skyrocket for it, the question you have to ask yourself after this theatre, what did you actually get? Housing affordability in Australia forecast to worsen, is forecast to worsen if the government continues giving tax concessions to private property investors, a new report finds. The report shows that the federal budget is expected to lose a quarter of a trillion dollars to negative gearing and capital gains tax concessions between 2010 and 2033. The federal government says it promises to reinvigorate the home building sector and has pledged to deliver $1.2 million in new homes in the next five years. Campaign spokeswoman Mayor Zize says the Housing Australia Future Fund is not enough to keep up with the demand. The Housing Australia Future Fund is only going to disperse at the most about $500 million over the next five years. That is going to be completely dwarfed by the amount of money that we're putting into the private rental market and private investors. They're looking at building, uh, they're projecting uh, in the best case scenario about 30,000 homes over the next five years. That's great. Uh, I wouldn't want to get in between someone who needs housing and one of those 30,000 homes, but it's not going to make the kind of impact that we need. The shortfall that we've got for social housing in Australia is 640,000. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has once again expressed condemnation of Israel for what he calls an unacceptable resistance to statehood for the Palestinian people. Speaking at the G7 summit in Uganda, Mr. G77 summit in Uganda, Mr. Guterres said the mounting deaths of Palestinian people in Gaza is heartbreaking, and he repeated his calls for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. He says this scale of massive destruction and killing is unprecedented, unprecedented in his time as Secretary General. The denial of the right to statehood for the Palestinian people would indefinitely prolong a conflict that has become a major threat to global peace and security, exacerbate polarization and embolden extremists everywhere. The G77 plus China is a group of 134 countries championing the common interests of countries from the global south. Ukrainian shelling has killed at least 27 people and injured 25 more in the Russian-controlled region of Donetsk in eastern Ukraine. The Russian Foreign Ministry says the attack was a barbaric act of terrorism and condemns the strike which it says was carried out with Western weaponry. The Donetsk region is one of four regions in Ukraine's east and south that Russia claims to have taken control of when it annexed Ukraine in 2022. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says in a single day, Russia shelled more than 100 cities, towns and villages and says attacks in the Donetsk region have been particularly severe. 
And to sport in netball, the Australian netball team has beaten hosts England by two goals at the Netball Nations Cup in London. The second consecutive win for the Diamonds culminated in a tight 61-59 result as the Australians came out on top against the Roses. England must now beat world number two New Zealand in their final group match before reaching the decider of the tournament. Australia will meet world number seven Uganda for the first time next week. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, thunderstorms on the top of 33, Perth, sunny 28, Adelaide, much the same, 32, Melbourne, cloudy 20, Hobart, shower to 16, Albury, Wodonga, mostly sunny 26, Canberra, partly cloudy 26, Wollongong, possible shower 23, Sydney, partly cloudy 26, Newcastle, similar conditions 26, Brisbane, partly cloudy 37, Townsville, mostly sunny 33, Cairns, a shower or two, 34 degrees, Alice Springs, cloudy 38, Darwin, showers and a possible storm on top of 32, and the Torres Strait Islands, scattered thunderstorms on the top of 28 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. TV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. I am Patron Tungandami and you're listening to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program, we're just a few days away from uh, January 26, a day that's loaded uh, with a lot of... Uh, Emotions. Well, in the program today, we have a conversation with Angelica Panopoulos, former mayor of Mary Bay Council, reflecting on January 26, how her council and grassroots organizations have been driving the narrative on how to mark January 26 in a manner that is respectful to First Nations people. Also on NITV Radio today, we have a conversation with Kate Russell, Supply Nation CEO, talking about a new business banking education and training initiative to support the growth of indigenous businesses. But first, Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe reflects on how the idea of holding Anzac Day style on services to mark the day of mourning came about and also how this day should be marked. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Lydia Thorpe, you showed leadership, being a leading figure on implementing an Anzac-style Vision Day Dawn service. Can you take us back to what you're going through and what was happening at the time before the first Anzac-style uh, Dawn service, Invasion mm. Day Dawn service? Mm. Well, I've been going to uh, Invasion Day rallies all my life. Getting older, uh, I realised that there were a number of people that were coming to rallies that uh, were having difficulties with the amount of people uh, and just, uh, you know, rallies aren't for everybody. So I wanted to bring to the people another option that started with healing and peace. And I was walking on my country when I found that that idea and, and that feeling and only had a couple of weeks to actually organise the first one. So I would have been happy with having 10 people turn up to the first dawn service on the 26th of January, which uh, William Cooper called for a day of mourning. So it was ultimately about getting back to the truth 
and from that first event or that first dawn service, I think we had around 2,000 people rock up. Uh, so that was a, an, an amazing start and the crowds just grew and grew each year and it's now being taken up by local government areas. It is about peace, it is about healing, and, but it's also quite raw to hear about the massacres that have occurred uh, in what is now called Victoria. So people go, go on a bit of a journey with First Peoples uh, reading out these massacre sites so people can understand those areas. A lot of people come from those areas and they're horrified to learn that there were massacres, you know, in their own neighbourhoods. So it really opened a space for people to come together and learn of the horrific injustices that continue to occur but also take some of the the pain by standing with us on a on a day that is so painful i've had feedback from people with disabilities particularly autism elderly people who find that the dawn service is what they prefer to do because of you know, it is a quiet event, very quiet event, even though there's now a lot of people attending. Uh, that's the whole purpose of the event is to create a safe space for everybody, all abilities, and just bring people together for healing and a feed. I remember the event, one of them that I attended, where there was a recitation of uh, all the massacre sites there. There was actually at a time when... Uh, academics and other researchers were mapping the uh, massacre sites. It was a very, very moving ceremony. What's the importance of having grassroots movements and the local councils now driving the narrative to have a more respectful, more inclusive way of marking January 26? This is exactly what I'm uh, encouraging the country to do, and that is go through a truth-telling journey. Uh, and a healing journey together from family clan level to local government level. Uh, That's how the reconciliation um, consultation happened. I was a part of that consultation uh, and my mother sat on the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. Now, all local governments were a part of that reconciliation process back in those days, 23 years ago, in fact, Uh, And so that brought local communities together, including traditional owners. They're the conversations that we need to be having. So the decisions need to come from the bottom up, not the top down. And that's a problem with democracy in this country. Uh, They deny the rights of grassroots where they're the ones that are homeless, they're the ones that are struggling to put food on the table, They're the ones that are dealing with deaths in custody. They're the ones that are dealing with child removal. So the solutions are in the communities themselves. And I think that us having conversations in those communities about 26th of January and the pain that that causes our people is an important conversation to have. But it's got to be respectful and it's got to be in a way where people take something away to reflect on so that we can eradicate the racism that occurs on that day. I think it's a real test for us 
on that day. It shows exactly where this country is at in terms of race relations. We need to turn that day around to be about uh, exactly what William Cooper called for, and that was a day of mourning. And a day of mourning is about healing, it's about acknowledgement, and it's about coming together to unite us ultimately in a way that we understand each other a whole lot more. And I think that that's what the Dawn Service uh, exemplifies and they're the conversations that will lead us to a peace treaty in this country. You've been at uh, the grassroots level where you're really highly respected and very effective. You've also been, and you are at the highest echelons of power. Why, in your view, are the states or the federal levels lagging behind when it comes to changing and uh, adapting uh, these um, uh, initiatives uh, that are emanating from the grassroots? The coloniser are not ever interested in the solutions from the sovereigns, the, so- the real sovereigns of these lands. If they wanted to listen to our solutions, they would have implemented those recommendations 32 years ago. They would have listened to our people when the frontier wars first came to these shores, and that was, you're not welcome here. You have no consent to come to our shore. We have to have a treaty. Please don't kill us. Like, it's consecutive governments that are just continuing this oppressive regime which the boat started when Cook arrived. Regardless of when he arrived, he brought a lot of harm. He brought disease. He brought guns. He hurt my people. He massacred my people. And even the bureaucracy that I have to deal with since I have been a politician They're not interested in solutions. I've sat in so many meetings. I've sat in so many Senate inquiries. I've sat in the chamber. And when you provide a solution from the people, it it gets voted down at the end of the day. It's not in the government's best interest to give us our rights. Who knows what might happen? We might start self-determining our own future, our own destiny. We might be able to not have our people killed in a racist system like they they have been, with no one held accountable. We might even be able to stop our children from being stolen so that they don't lose their language, their culture, their song, their dance. But no colonising government, whether they be Labor, Liberal or National, have ever been interested in stopping those injustices, those genocidal acts. So we just have to keep the pressure on. We are the people and the people have the power and don't underestimate the power of the people. They're the ones who put the politicians there, right? Yeah, and so it's uh, the whole system needs to be overhauled as I can uh, deduct from uh, your answer there. The whole system is failing the community and the people. Now... Bertrand, it's yeah. meant to. It's meant to fail us. And that's why... Uh, our people think, you know, there's obviously a lot of our people who think that this voice was good for us when it's only a very, very small gesture from the colonial power. We've got to stop taking the rations from the mission managers. 
and we need to demand justice for our people. 20, January 26, 2024, how will you mark this? Because it will be a landmark one after the referendum. How do you see January 24 and how will you be marking January 26, 2024, not January 24, January 26, 2024? Mm-hmm. Richard, it makes me tired even thinking about Invasion Day. That's another assault on our people, you know, like the activists and the organisers of rallies every year. We're exhausted. Even, you know, even now to even think that we've got to organise another rally to for this country to listen to us is tiring. I think we should be thinking about peace and harmony and healing and I think out of respect, the Prime Minister should call for January 26 to be a day of reflection and healing and whatever that looks like without being disrespectful on a day that means hurt for us. Like the Prime Minister has an opportunity and a responsibility to bring peace and call for peace in this country. I think the referendum is um, has brought out the racists in this country and and we know that they're the same ones that come out every 26th of January. So the Prime Minister needs to put an end to the war on our people so that we're not tired when, when we're leading up to the 26th of January. Uh, and see that as a, an opportunity for this nation to reflect and heal. Yeah, to this Prime Minister's credit, uh, we had initially when the grassroots organisations and movements and local councils had started actually not uh, celebrating uh, citizenships on January 26 and uh, had already started talking about changing the date, and you had pushback from the previous government and the current government, actually, the Albanese government, brought in a little bit more flexibility by allowing local councils to actually do their citizenship ceremonies on different days and uh, be a little bit more flexible compared to the previous government. So there's a little bit of a uh, move in the right direction there. That's um, only taken 200 years, but, you know, we're patient people in this country um, and good on uh, Anthony Albanese for relaxing those rules. I think that is an act of good faith, absolutely. Uh, but we need to be mindful of changing the date. Um, we can't change the date when we still have the problem. The problem still exists. So we can only change the date when we fix the problem. If you change the date to whatever other day, you're just moving the problem to that date. So we need to have a truth-telling journey and a conversation around treaty so that we can all come up with a peace agreement on a day that means peace. And what does peace look like? Peace looks like the end of the killings of our people and the end of the removals of our children and the end of the destruction of land and water. And it also means giving some land back. Give us our land back. You know, there's a lot of crown land around right now. Uh, well, what's left uh, that the government are continue, continuing to sell off very quickly. 
So we need to halt those sales of Crown land so that we have something back, something left for our children's children. Lydia Thorpe, thank you very much for having the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today once again. My pleasure. Thank you very much. We must now go to a break, and when we come back, we continue reflections around January 26 and how local councils and grassroots organizations are driving the narrative and policy development. Stay tuned. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. Local councils won't be forced to run citizenship ceremonies on January 26 after the federal government scrapped a controversial rule made by uh, the previous uh, local federal government. The Greens-led Mary Bay Council in Melbourne's north was one of the first to welcome the decision allowing councils to hold citizenship ceremonies within three days of the national holiday. It's also one of the local councils that have been driving the narrative around the policy on how to mark January 26. Well, late last year, I caught up with former Mary Beck Mayor, Councillor Angelica Panopoulos, to take us through how the conversation around this day has been going and developing in the area over the years and how the decision to no longer celebrate January 26 came about in Mary Beck. This um, decision to no longer celebrate January 26, that was made back in 2017, so before I was on the council, but... Back then, um, you know, the count, the majority of councillors, they decided, you know, that January 26th is not a day to celebrate. It's not an inclusive or unifying holiday um, for people. It's, you know, it's a day of, of like, deep loss and trauma um, for First Nations people, and that's what, you know, they were consistently being told. Um, and so this was about, like, listening to them and, um, I guess not, yeah, not celebrating a day that is so harmful for so many people. Is the date referred to as uh, Australia Day at Mary Beck Council or Morning Day? How is it uh, called? How do you call it? So we don't call it Australia Day. Um, it really it really depends. So some will say January 26th, some will say Invasion Day or Morning Day, but clear that it's yeah, not a day to celebrate um, this country. Yeah. How is uh, the date uh, marked or commemorated or how is it marked uh, in uh, your official calendar since uh, 2017? Yeah, so we have um, a day of mourning on that day on January 26th. In previous years, um, we've worked with the First Nations Advisory Committee at Council um, and Wurundjeri Elders who have guided us and We've had um, morning ceremonies in Coburg outside of our civic centre and also at one of our reserves um, on Bell Street. So we have morning morning ceremonies um, to mark the day. In some councils, there's a dawn service. Uh, does Marybeck Council hold a Anzac Day style dawn service or on more on? Uh, we haven't. We haven't in the past. Um, our our services have been more during the daytime um, as opposed to that dawn time. How did this process come about? Is it just the councillors sat down and reflected and thought, oh, this is not respectful of uh, all our communities or there was um, engagement and conversations with our traditional owners? So I wasn't on, on the council at that point in time, but, you know, there would have been engagement with First Nations people in the community, um, the broader Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people, um, and also we've got a statement of commitment as well 
um, that we've had for many, many years at council, which basically outlines that, you know, we will listen to First Nations people and work really hard on reconciliation and addressing um, some of the issues of the past. And I think, um, you know, as someone who's been, say, attending the January 26 rallies in the city for many, many years, you, you notice that each year it gets bigger and bigger um, and there is a greater groundswell of people who um, I guess are becoming more knowledgeable um, of the reality of what January 26 means um, for First Nations people in this country. Yeah. And the statement of commitment made in 2021, uh, can you run us through some of uh, the decisions reached at that time? Um, so the statement basically outlines that, you know, we're going to be listening to First Nations people in the community um, and that we'll be working together to get to reconciliation. Um, and it also actually outlines our support for voice, um, treaty and truth. So all three parts of the Uluru Statement from the Heart um, we had committed to back in 2021. Coming back to the decisions, 2017 was a really a year when many councils around the country, actually around 2016-17, many councils were making decisions to actually be more inclusive, more respectful of First Nations communities. And then we had a reaction from uh, the federal government, which was not always in line with what local councils were doing, and there was some backlash. How has your council reacted to that, and uh, how is it uh, working with uh, the current uh, federal government and uh, advancing uh, the changes for January 26? Mm. Yeah, so back around that 2016-2017 period, um, the then coalition government decided that because councils um, weren't celebrating January 26, um, they decided that they changed the citizenship code um, and said that all councils had to have a citizenship ceremony on January 26. And now citizenship ceremonies are like a really joyous and emotional day and like they're something that you want to celebrate and be happy about. And so them forcing councils to have these ceremonies on that day was essentially saying, well, actually, no, you're going to celebrate this whether you want to or not. That was, I guess, that part of the decision. And back then, a, a couple of other councils, so Darabin and Yarra, decided to not have citizenship ceremonies on that day, um, whereas we were called Moreland at the time, we decided to continue with it. Um, and what the federal government did in response to the other two councils is they got rid of their ability to have citizenship ceremonies at all. They said, because you don't want to have this ceremony on, you know, Invasion Day or they called it Australia Day, you're not going to be able to have these ceremonies at all. And now we have at least one a month, um, often two a month. So that's a lot of new citizens that we get to talk to directly and inform them of, you know, our community, the democratic process and their rights as as voters um, that, is, that had been stripped away from councils. So it was a pretty um, pretty awful reaction from the then federal government. Um, but in December of last year, um, and it was my first meeting as the mayor, um, we had a, a recommendation from our First Nations Advisory Committee that had said to us that they recommend that we cease to hold citizenship ceremonies on January 26. So we, we were presented with this um, recommendation um, and we... Councillors knew that if we voted for this recommendation, then we would be in breach of the federal code that said that you had to have these ceremonies on this day. And so it was a very, very close vote. It was my casting vote, but we decided, all right, 
we'll breach the code and see what happens. And I think like we took that calculated risk because it was a new government, um, you know, a new government that's talking about voice at the federal level, treaty at the state level and saying that they actually want to further reconciliation. So we decided that we would breach the code um, and take a stand and say that we shouldn't have, you know, a joyous celebration of a citizenship ceremony on such an awful day. And so there was a few, there was a few tense days where we thought, okay, um, we might be losing our right to have citizenship ceremonies entirely. Um, but thankfully, the federal government then actually changed the rules and didn't. And now we're no longer forced to have the ceremonies on January 26. So, like, it's been a bit of a, a long journey to get there, and it's required a different government <laughs> federally to allow us to have that flexibility um, and to be respectful of our community. Um, but we did finally get there by, I think, pushing the envelope um, a bit. So, yeah, it was a long, a long journey to get there, but we finally did. And that was Angelica Panopoulos, former mayor of Meribek Council. The full conversation, actually, will be published on our website uh, shortly after the program. We must now step aside for another break. And when we come back, we explore a new initiative designed to support the growth of Indigenous uh, businesses. Uh, stay tuned. Welcome back. Now, Supply Nation and uh, the Commonwealth are teaming up to launch a new business banking, education and training initiative to support the growth of Indigenous businesses. Supply Nation CEO Kate Russell spoke to NITV Radio's Radio's Ngairi Pakai further about what this launch will mean for Indigenous businesses across Australia. You're listening to NITV. I'm Nairi Pakai and I'm here with Kate Russell. Supply Nation and the Commonwealth Bank are teaming up to launch a new business banking, education and training to support the growth of Indigenous businesses. We are joined by Supply Nation's CEO, Kate Russell. Thanks for coming on to NITV. Thanks, Nairi. It's really nice to, to be here. So I just want you to introduce yourself a little bit. Uh, what do you do at Supply Nation as CEO? Oh, so, sure. Look, it's a pretty good gig. Um, as, as you said, my name's Kate Russell. I'm the new CEO of Supply Nation. I'm a very proud Olympical woman from Western Lake Macquarie, but right now um, I'm on Wongal country. That's home for me and Sydney's in the West. So I've been in the role at Supply Nation for almost six months now. If you don't know who we are, we are a national non-profit and we work to connect over 4,600 verified Indigenous businesses with more than 780 paid corporate, government and non-profit members in every state and territory. We've been operating now for 15 years and last year we enabled over $4.1 billion in spend on our Indigenous businesses through our members. With this, how long has uh, Commonwealth Bank Australia been a partner with Supply Nation? CBA have actually been with us since the very beginning. They were one of our founding members who pledged commitment to Supply Nation and allowed us to actually um, set up as, as our organisation. So they are, they are long-term partners with us. We've collaborated on various things over the years and this is the latest iteration. 
I wanted to know, what are the benefits of this collaboration for Supply Nation and the Indigenous businesses that are already part of you? And then I guess also new businesses that will jump at a chance of this support? No, that's a great question. And I think there are four primary benefits, but I do need to call out that this is a partnership and an offering that's not just about Supply Nation businesses. This is actually open to any Indigenous businesses that operate, whether you are registered with us or, or not. So that first benefit I see is, for all intents and purposes, it's an Indigenous front door to the bank. It's a specific hotline that concierges Indigenous businesses through CBA. The concierge then connects businesses with what they call an Ignite Banker. So this is a program that CBA has been running about having culturally aware or culturally competent bankers who can make sure that the rest of your customer journey as is as culturally informed and appropriate as possible. That Ignite Banker will then work with Indigenous businesses to determine which of the bespoke products, rates and services are right for them. And to close that out, the, the fourth one would be our educational series, which is going to improve the capability of businesses and specifically their ability to access capital, which is one of the wicked problems facing um, not only Indigenous businesses, but I would say the black economy. How does this new package differ from what support is already offered by Supply Nation? The partnering to provide financial products and services is a completely new area for Supply Nation, but I think it speaks to just how important we feel this is for the Indigenous economy. We have a number of existing capability programs for suppliers. We have Kickstart that focuses on building your business profile. Jumpstart is about mentoring and Drive is is about increasing your ability to successfully tender for programs. So the education partnership with CBA drives what I would call business resilience. It's focusing on those capabilities that businesses need not only to survive, but to thrive. And what are your thoughts on the federal government's proposed uh, change to the definition of what uh, constitutes is an Indigenous business? I love it. Not only do I welcome this, but this is something that Supply Nation has long advocated for. We have an existing certification process that already uses the 51% owned, managed and controlled definition that the government is consulting on. So for us, this is very familiar. This is positive. I think I'm hoping that it is embraced by the sector. I think one of the benefits of this change is that it is going to combat the practice of black cladding uh, and ensure a more rigorous verification process nationally. 1%, which is, you know, we're moving from 50 to 51% Indigenous owned, managed and controlled. So 1%, it seems like a really small number, but it can make a really big difference. By including standards of management and control, it's going to strengthen the economy and it's also going to increase confidence in Indigenous business, which can only have better business outcomes and increased spend. With this partnership with our Commonwealth Bank and Supply Nation, what do you anticipate for the Indigenous sector over the next coming years? Oh, look, if I had a crystal ball, I'd definitely be playing the lotto. Um, but what I, what the trends that I see is an increasing focus on verification to ensure that integrity of the sector. Black cladding is a really wicked problem and one that gets talked about a lot, and I think this change will help that. I think international opportunities remain for many, not only Indigenous businesses, just for businesses. It's the last final frontier. And Indigenous expansion and representation into foreign jurisdictions is going to continue with government support. 
I think just like the broader business sector, there's going to be an increased focus on sustainability and ESG. Um, I think that is a key area that we will be focusing on with CBA, preparing our Indigenous businesses for the future. And that's my role. It's ensuring Supply Nation and our stakeholders are ready for this very exciting future. The future seems like it's going to be really hopeful for Indigenous businesses now with this support being rolled out, I believe, in March. I just want to thank you for coming on to the show today and talking with NITV. No, you're absolutely welcome. Um, We love NITV. And look, if you're a black business and you're out there listening, don't be a stranger. Come and check out Supply Nation. That was Kate Russell, CEO of Supply Nation. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. That was uh, Eternity by uh, Mikaisha, and uh, that brings us to the end of uh, today's uh, program. NITV Radio will be back on Wednesday and Friday with more news and stories from uh, right across the country. I'm Bertrand Tungandami, thanking you for your company this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu. is a podcast from SBS that guides you through different meditation styles from around the world. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.